0: A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard, it can move
1: anywhere in time. Avon,
0: Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There and is a, a corridor,
1: a and the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, on display, on
0: display I eventually display. had to go down to the cellar, that's the display department, with a torch. The lights probably gone, so had the stairs. Yours is number six. I am not
1: a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 389. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are talking about Alice in Wonderland. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. This
0: is a BBC television play version of Lewis Carroll's famous book, it's from 1966 this version. It's 70 minutes long, it's in black and white, and it's directed by none other than Jonathan Miller and it's
1: it's an intriguing one
0: for us Brian.
1: It is. It's a strange dreamlike interpretation. Of the classic novel with a great cast, very interesting cast. This is actually the first time we're covering an Alice in Wonderland production. So it's taken us a while, but we're starting with uh, definitely an interesting one. Lots to talk about. Yes, indeed. So the setup, we see Alice and her sister getting ready for the day with servants doing their hair and sending them out into the been a summer day to entertain themselves
0: yes they sent out with books they're off out into a meadow by a river where they sit down in the long grass and perhaps inevitably on a warm summer day start to become a bit sleepy. And then Alice may start, may fall asleep and start dreaming, or does she? We'll talk about that perhaps next time. But she sees an impatient-looking man with a watch hurrying by, and rather intrigued by him, she gets up and follows, and she'll soon find herself caught up in the whole Adventures of Wonderland. In this increasingly bizarre series of events with some very strange characters
1: that we're going to get to in a moment. Yes, absolutely. So starting into those characters, Alice, played by Anne-Marie Malak in her only on-screen role, determined young Victorian girl who knows her mind for sure. Her inner monologue is something we hear as narration throughout, sometimes in a sort of strange whispered way, and she observes and comments on the characters and the things she sees. Anne-Marie Malick was about 13 when she recorded this. And of course, in Wonderland,
0: she's going to meet quite an array of strange characters. We'll go through a few of them. The White Rabbit, I've just mentioned, uh, played by Wilfred Bramble of Steptoe and Son fame. He is the distracted and impatient man with the watch. And he sets Alice off on her adventures as she follows him into this Wonderland world. That's
1: right. The Mad Hatter was played by Peter Cook, who was hosting the seemingly endless tea party, commenting on the difficulties of social conversation and interactions and so on. And bringing a bit of what a comedy legend like Peter Cook might bring to a character like that. Have we come across Peter Cook on this podcast before, Brian? We have not. I don't think we have at all.
0: I don't think we have, no. Okay, so, you know, as you say, a comedy legend, great satirist, here, a very interesting play in the Mad Hatter.
1: Known more for film rather than television, I think.
0: Yes, probably, yes. Of course, if you have a Mad Hatter, you need a March Hare, and here he's played by, no less, Michael Goff, who is probably best known to us as the Celestial Toy Maker from Doctor Who, but of course, again, had a long television and film career, I suppose notably playing um, Alfred the Butler to Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne in the Tim Burton Batman films, but you know, a very illustrious career, and he's playing a very sort of distracted, bored almost at times catatonic version of the March Hare, who doesn't seem to interact so much with the Mad Hatter and Alice, but just sort of comments on them at various points. Interesting.
1: Yes, that's right. Again, something of a strange character. And I think Michael Goff, and we've seen Michael Goff and talked about him a number of times now, but he brought something a lot to that role, I think. Speaking of interesting people bringing things to the roles. And speaking of comedy legends, the King of Hearts was played by none other than Peter Sellers. Wow. Yeah, and he was played as a sort of officious character who struggles to keep up with what's going on around him, and so on. Again, this strange character with a bit of a blend of deadpan comedy and more explicit comedy, as only Peter Sellers could bring. Again, someone known more for film rather than television.
0: But certainly the first time I think we've talked about him on the podcast. Absolutely. And if you have a King of Hearts next to him, you'll have the Queen of Hearts here played by Alison Leggett. And of course, in Alice in Wonderland fashion, she is marching around, finding fault with most everything she encounters and often calling for the uh, the miscreants, the perpetrators to lose their heads in her familiar cry of off with your head or off with their heads. It's the Queen of Hearts. We sort of know that drill from various versions of Alice in Wonderland.
1: Yes, the Queen of Hearts and the King of Hearts were some of the more familiar characters to Alice in Wonderland that we see Some of the others were a little less identifiable, but they were very much there. And you mentioned that we've got
0: a great cast because it goes very deep within the various roles in this production. We'll mention quickly Leo McKern, who was a very good number two from The Prisoner although perhaps best known on British television for playing Rumpole of the Bailey, he turns up as the Duchess of all things. John Gielgud, no less, is the Mock Turtle. Alan Bennett turns up as the Mouse... I didn't mention in our notes, but Michael Redgrave is the caterpillar. And if you keep your eyes open at the uh, background characters, you'll see a very young and very early role for the, uh, the python Eric Idle. And I've sort of lost count, Brian. I can't remember if that's two or three of the pythons that have now turned up on
1: the podcast. That would now be three that we've been able to mention because we talked about John Cleese for Whoops Apocalypse. And Michael Palin for narrating the newer version of the Clangers. So yes, that is three of them we've uh, we've talked about now. I don't know how many others we'll be able to get to, but interesting to see them here and as you say fantastic cast seeing john gilgood turn up you know real amazing classical actor show up and sort of add a bit of extra energy later on in the production that was quite neat to have there fantastic
0: and for those keeping score then on the python watch and i'm glad you're keeping score brian it's three yes Three out of six. We should perhaps mention that none of the actors appear in animal costumes. So the white rabbit is not dressed as a rabbit. The March Hare is not a hare. These are all... Well, they've done something different with the costumes,
1: haven't they, Brian? They have. They're in sort of Victorian or Edwardian historical costumes. And the idea that Jonathan Miller had behind that was that the White Rabbit, the March Hare, the Mock Turtle, and so on, that those were nicknames rather than actually describing these anthropomorphic animals which is what we usually are familiar with than alice in wonderland mm, indeed both from the various illustrations from even the very early publications of the book and also other adaptations so it is very different to see human appearances for all of these characters interesting stuff indeed We also have some strange settings with an abandoned hospital, a rose garden, some quite interesting seaside uh, locations, and a courtroom. And Alice seems to move from one strange situation to another and sort of almost dispassionately comment on those and point out flaws in what people say and so on. And as you
0: say, Brian, sometimes she does that interacting by talking to the characters, but at other times we get her inner voice, her monologue, her narration over the scenes as she moves from one area to another or encounters a certain group, or even at times when she seems to be conversing, but we hear the voice but don't see her lips move which we'll, you know, we'll perhaps talk about later in the strange dreamlike quality of this show.
1: Yes, there is a very particular look to this that is more something you might think of with art films from the era rather than with Alice in Wonderland. So we should get us some production notes on this. Yes, and quite a lot to talk about. So Lewis Carroll was the pen name of
0: Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, who lived from 1832 to 1898, a well-known mathematician, a scholar, a lecturer at Christ College, Oxford, whose you know, ended up writing for children, but he's uh, mainly
1: known as a sort of mathematician and scholar at the time, I guess, Brian. Yes, I think that's right. And Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published in 1865, and where that was rooted, the origin of that came from a boat trip from about three years earlier that Lewis Carroll had taken with another scholar and the children of their friend Henry Little. Alice Little was the middle of those three children, the middle sibling of those children and dodgson or lewis carroll entertained those children with stories about a bored girl who fell down a rabbit hole and into this strange world of anthropomorphic animals and bizarre characters and it was that conversation and that sort of off-the-cuff storytelling that would turn into this book And interestingly, he
0: not only was a mathematician and he not only could write for children, but he could also draw a bit. And he did the initial illustrations for the book himself, but was quite dissatisfied, I think, with how they came out. So much so that he asked for the first print run to be mostly scrapped. And I believe, Brian, that surviving copies of the initial print run are extremely rare and extremely valuable these days, I can imagine. Oh, I could imagine, yes. Perhaps better known are the pencil drawings or pencil and ink drawings by the artist John Tenniel. 42 drawings that were then done to accompany or to illustrate subsequent printings of the book. And those, I suspect, are the ones we probably know best.
1: Yeah, those are used in a lot of publications of Alice in Wonderland, for sure. But there have been other sets of drawings. There have been a number of sets of illustrations that have come out for Alice in Wonderland, including one from 1946 by Mervyn Peake, who was also an author, and we, of course, know as the author of gormenghast and we've covered the television adaptation of gormenghast so there's a fun connection there too that is an interesting connection
0: yes of course lewis carroll famously followed up alice's adventures in wonderland with through the looking glass in 1871 which we may get to at some point as well we are looking at productions possibly of uh, alice through the looking Glass. Stay tuned as ever. And of course, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, like many notable works of Victorian. fiction, were extremely successful and influenced many, many other different sort of adaptations and versions and other media. So we know that there was children's fantasy stories based on similar ideas to uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. We know that, of course, there was theatre productions. Quite early on, there was a pantomime version, operas, ballet. And then, of course, once we reached the 20th century, after you know, the passing of Lewis Carroll in the 20th century, it explodes onto film and television.
1: I think explodes is a good description there because there were so many productions. Wikipedia lists 20 different film and television versions of Alice in Wonderland that are before this 1966 production. And of course, there were many others after that. But even by the mid 60s, there were 20 of them there possibly the most notable one being the 1951 Disney animated version, which gave us the images of the characters that are also some of the very well-remembered ones that people often think of.
0: And it is amazing how many productions of Alice in Wonderland have been. And I was trying to figure out and haven't been able to answer this question when it stopped being Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and just became Alice in Wonderland. It seems to be, I think, when it jumps to the theatre and film that the adventures gets dropped and it's now known commonly by the shorter title.
1: Yes, that's an interesting point. That may well be that that's when that change typically happened. Sir Jonathan Miller lived 1934 to 2019. He was a well-known polymath who studied medicine at Cambridge and became involved with the Footlights Theatrical Club, a comedy group at Cambridge, and went on to become a part of the successful Beyond the Fringe review with Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, and Alan Bennett. So involved with some pretty big names in comedy there. He also did work for television and so on. We remember him from his 1968 omnibus adaptation of the M.R. James ghost story, Whistle It I'll Come to You, My Lad, which it was also adapted with a shorter title, Whistle and I'll Come to You. And that was a big influence on the BBC Ghost Story for Christmas strand, which started just a few years later. And we covered that version of Whistle and I'll Come to You in British Invaders 57 and 58. Yes, we did quite some time ago. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in our
0: next episode. And one thing I don't know, which I didn't check on, was whether actually Jonathan Miller ever practised medicine because it seems that after the success of Beyond the Fringe, he started to work in theatre and television. And in 1965, he took over as the editor and presenter of the BBC arts programme, Monitor. And the previous presenter of the programme, Hugh Weldon, had gone on to become the BBC controller by this stage, And I know that Miller spoke to him about joining the BBC's directorial sort of training programme. But interestingly, perhaps in a very 60s fashion, Hugh Weldon said, oh, he would just pick it up as he went along, and perhaps he should try his hand at a TV play. And that sort of leads to this production.
1: Yeah, and from a more current perspective, that is a very strange way to get involved with something like that, di- jumping right into television production as a director. But Jonathan Miller remembered reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as a child and how he found it sort of quite frightening and nightmarish, which is not how we usually think of Alice in Wonderland. It's tep- typically thought of as a more uh, upbeat and cheerful and charming fantasy but he he saw it a bit differently and he also remembered long hot summer days as a boy being bored and looking for adventures to distract him So he sort of looked at these ideas and decided to make a version of the book, but without using the animal costumes suggested by Tenniel's drawings and other adaptations. Yes,
0: we've already said that Jonathan Miller thought he could interpret the animal names in the book as merely being nicknames for characters in this strange dream world. But he also noted, I think afterwards, that it did help at the time with the budgeting of this TV play. And also he felt it helped with the actors' performances, that they weren't encumbered by strange costumes or makeups and they could concentrate on their performance. So there was some, he saw some benefits in doing it that way. And we have to say he attracted an impressive cast, possibly because of his theatre connections. He got an amazing array of theatre and film actors. I'll also mention he got the TV presenter Malcolm Muggeridge, a famous face on British TV at the time, to play the Griffin in the production with of course, John Gilgood has the Mock Turtle. And of course, he got two of his Beyond the Fringes back. Alan Bennett is there. Peter Cook is there. We were only lacking Dudley Moore, I'm afraid, Brian.
1: Yes, we don't have Dudley Moore in here, but it seems we have nearly everyone else. And Jonathan Miller did quite, you know, he wrote this adaptation.
0: He produced it. He directed it. It's shot in, as we've said, in black and white with a very sort of deep, sharp focus Achieved by Dick Bush, who was doing the sort of photography for him, Dick Bush goes on to a very successful film career, working mostly with the directors, Ken Russell and Blake Edwards. But it's quite a sort of distinctive, sharp look this version brian
1: yes for sure the deep focus look sort of recalls the stanley kubrick and orson wells type work although miller was looking more for the dreamlike look of some european directors like jean cocteau and fellini so you have something very interesting in the visuals there which really can only be Done when it's shot on film, and it was shot on film, and it still looks great fifty-five years later. You know, the versions we've been looked, we've been looking at are cleaned up of any dust and marks that were on there and it really looks very good. Miller and Bush also used some forced perspective for some of the sequences where Alice appears to shrink or to grow. They didn't push into that idea as much as some other adaptations do, but it is there and they did use some forced perspective there as well. Locations for shooting included
0: the abandoned Netley Hospital that we see in the early part of production when Alice is wandering around, trying to keep track of the White Rabbit, an abandoned uh, mental health facility that has, was subsequently demolished and gives a sort of slightly spooky look to the early part of the show. And we've got to mention another distinguished name from this period because the music for this play was composed and performed by the noted sitar player Ravi Shankar, which Jonathan Miller spoke to him and asked him for something that perhaps would give the idea of the buzzing of insects on this hot summer day that, you know, produces the drowsy Alice and the drowsy dreams. And, of course, mid-60s were at the peak of Ravi Shankar's sort of world fame and popularity, also noted at the time for, you know, befriending and teaching Fans like the Birds, and most notably, of course, George Harrison and the Beatles, I guess, Brian.
1: Yes, Ravi Shankar was a spectacular musician and composer coming from India. And he went on to have a very successful career for decades after this as well, working with people like Philip Glass and so on. And he was coming from India and bringing Indian music to the West. And in a lot of ways he was sort of the the first one to do that and uh, in a major way. And we definitely have an Indian flavor to the music here with his sitar playing. There is also tabla on here that's quite audible. They've Indian drums. And I didn't see a credit for who played those. They only credited, I think, Shankar and someone for playing I think oboe and maybe other uh, other woodwinds but there's some interesting things on there with the music that help give this an unusual feel with a uh, sort of british costuming and voices and this Indian music
0: coming in. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating part of this production.
1: Alison Wonderland was broadcast on BBC One on December 28th, 1966 at 9.05pm. And possibly there may have been
0: some confusion between Miller and the BBC about what he was going to deliver to them, because I have read some suggestions that they were expecting a children's production. And of course, they didn't get a production that was necessarily suitable for children. And so it was shown after nine o'clock. And possibly the timing, or maybe the sort of the whole sort of feel of this production, meant that some critics were quite unhappy with it when it was first broadcast you know they called it out for not including the animal animals as you know animal costumes or similar and of course they also called it out for its unsuitability for children despite the fact that it was shown between christmas and new year so you know it perhaps wasn't terribly well re- reviewed although the guardian newspaper interestingly said it was a profound and brilliant film so some critics enjoyed it It's always interesting to find out what the critics thought at these times, Brian.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there's definitely a game of expectations going on here. Because if you're expecting Alice in Wonderland as you're accustomed to, this is not really what you get in this film. You get something very different. And, yeah, I can definitely see how there would be reactions that way. And what you think of it, well, it's a very different production, and we'll talk a a bit more about that later. It was repeated on the BBC in April of the following year, in 1967.
0: And then that probably is it, until we get to availability, and in Region 2, the BFI, famously, our favourites, transferred it from film to DVD in 2003. Now, the BFI version of the DVD that came out then had some extra features... It included a commentary by Jonathan Miller himself, some production photography, and it also included the surviving, I think it's about eight minutes or so, Brian, of the very first uh, film version of Alice in Wonderland ever from 1903.
1: Yes, there are a few minutes still missing from that, but it was quite a short film and most of it exists. That's quite an interesting thing to look at. If you search for
0: Alice in Wonderland 1903, you will easily find those surviving minutes on YouTube, so you can see what we're talking about there. Now, sadly, that BFI DVD, of course, since has been deleted and is rather hard to get hold of. There is a more stripped down DVD that was then reissued in 2014, which is the one we've been looking at, includes this very nice sharp transfer from the film, but that's it. No extras on that version, unfortunately. However, that is still available at about £13. Jill has emailed us and asked us to keep updating about whether these productions are available on any of the streaming sites. And I have looked hard in Region 2, and I can't find this on any streamers, including the BFI player, which puzzles me. But there you go. If you do find this streaming anywhere, please let us know. Now, if I turn you across the Atlantic to Region 1.
1: Yeah, so in Region 1, there was a DVD release of it in 2010, which appears to be out of print now. It sells, I think, for a new copy for about $40 on Amazon.com now, but there are better prices for used copies floating around. So there is some availability and if you look for the region one version you could probably find a decent price as a used copy oh interesting okay and of course the book is in the public domain and it is widely available still in print of course
0: and I might just mention here one other thing about this production because last year in 2021 the victoria and albert museum here in england had an exhibition connected to alice in wonderland and as part of that exhibition They included a short clip of this production and you can find on BBC iPlayer over here a documentary called Secrets of the Museum, which shows some of the preparation for that exhibition and also notably shows Jonathan Miller's widow, his son and his two granddaughters, Going to see the exhibition before it opened and talking about Jonathan Miller and his love of Alice in Wonderland and his love of this production and how he, even in his latter years, when sadly he was struggling with dementia, he would still talk about his version of Alice in Wonderland and ask people if they'd seen it. And when this episode comes out, if you're on the Facebook group, I will put a link to that BBC iPlayer documentary, because it's a nice little watch of a few minutes in this documentary about this production.
1: Oh, interesting. That's nice that they were including that in the exhibit there. So that'll do us for the first part. We've
0: got lots to talk about next time. We're going to talk a little bit about the dreamlike nature of this production, which we've hinted at many times. And we'll talk about a little, maybe some other productions of Alice in Wonderland And we'll also mention Jonathan Miller's Whistle and I'll Come to You. So quite a bit to get to, Brian.
1: Yes, absolutely. We will also give you our own reviews and recommendations, of course. Until then, you can find all of our episodes at britishinvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our Facebook group and join in on the conversation. We are also on Twitter at BritInvadersPod. So please follow us there if you can.
0: And we're also on the Voice of Geeks network, which you'll find at vognetwork.com. British Invaders a proud member. Come along and see what's going
1: on there as well. Yes, indeed. So thank you for listening. And this is Brian from Canada signing off. Yes, thank you very much. Until next time, Eamon in England, also signing
0: enough.